Herod's slaughter of the innocent babies in Judea is part of the Christmas story, which doesn't make it into the Hallmark Christmas cards, obviously. Our society loves the little cozy manger, beautifully choreographed angels, the star above, gentle lowing of cattle who almost certainly do not smell, and of course, the soft gurgles and curdles of the gentle babe of Bethlehem who no crying he makes. But there were babies crying after the birth of Jesus. The crying out of hundreds of innocent boys brutally stabbed and of the wailing of women in what some regard as the greatest grief of the human condition, a mother losing her children. Except in this instance from Matthew, we're talking hundreds of mothers wailing in anguish and grief. This genocide that Matthew recounts is, is almost a replay of the one that happened to the Hebrew babies in Egypt almost two centuries earlier. And if we hadn't, hadn't heard this story a hundred times before, we would have wanted to halt the service during the reading of the gospel and complain of its horrific nature and lament such inappropriate matter for a Sunday in Christmas, let alone New Year's Day. And when we pause and remember that it's not just a story, but a portion of the history of Jesus Christ, the Savior, it's all the more unsettling. Those of you who, who have visited the Holy Land, and for those of you who will one day, your tour bus stops at several sites, huge fortresses and seaports, where you can walk on the stones and the stairways and walkways built by the man who perpetrated this atrocity. Herod the Great, installed by the Roman Senate as a puppet ruler, he governs all the area of Palestine, roughly the area of modern Israel today. He was a ruthless and paranoid individual, <laughs> having murdered his own wife, his three sons, he had many more, but he murdered three of them. His mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his uncle, and who knows who else. Herod is not really Jewish, though he pretends to be. He's from Edom, way down in the desert of Jordan. But he grew up in a, in a decent, well-off family. His mother was Jewish, and he got involved in politics in the region and uh, came into good graces with the uh, Roman uh, governorship down there and had a lot of, uh, they liked him and so they put him in charge of Palestine. And who knows if Herod actually believed any of the scriptures of the, of, the, of the Jews, but he knows enough of the Hebrew scriptures to have heard of the promised Messiah. He knew that there was a king coming or the prophecy of the king coming from the house of David, the king. So Herod believed, as did many Jews, that this coming king would be a political ruler who would free his people from the tyranny of Rome. If, if, if Herod had any faith in the scriptures, he at least believed that this promised Messiah was going to be, like him, a political ruler. And so that means bad news for him, doesn't it? Because Herod depends on Rome for his position of power. 
Man, these people were pretty shallow in their day, weren't they? I mean, let's look at this for a minute. If you had been Herod back then, wouldn't you have gladly given up your position to make way for Jesus, the true-born king of the Jews? You wouldn't have let your ego and your materialistic desires get in the way now, would you? You would have happily given up the palace in Jerusalem and many of your mini palaces throughout the land, which were always staffed with servants and the best wine and food, ready for your arrival at any time you decided to stay a few nights to get away from all that hard political work being the ruler of Palestine and all, or to just get away and hide during the revolt from your own people that you expect will happen at any moment. Yeah, you would have, you would have given up all that and retired a private life in a little house in Tiberias on the beautiful shores of Galilee. And you would have just let Jesus run everything when he grows old enough to rule the land. Sure, you and I would have done all that. Well, maybe Herod didn't spell it out in that way to the uh, wise men when they showed up, but he tried to give them that kind of impression. Oh, yes, I want to worship this newborn king too. Tell me where you find him so I may go there and bow down before him. Well, the magi don't, the, the, the wise men, they don't, they don't fall for that. They were given some knowledge about Herod's uh, plan in a dream. Obviously by God. It, it doesn't say, Matthew doesn't say, but I mean, that's, you, can, you can infer that, right? <laughs> and Herod is enraged when he realizes he's been uh, dissed by the magi and orders his Jerusalem garrison to slaughter all male children under the age of two in and around Bethlehem. These innocent children are sometimes called the first Christian martyrs. They, didn't, they hadn't had a chance to believe in Jesus yet, right? But they died on account of him, on account of his existence. Their, commemor their commemoration in the Christian church is December 28th and is named Holy Innocence. Well, we didn't have a church service on December 28th, so we're, we're commemorating it today. Even after Herod's death, though, Joseph and his family are not completely safe. Herod the Great's son, Archelaus, was so cruel and tyrannical that even the Romans couldn't work with this guy, and they eventually had him deposed before he died. Joseph hides his family back in the remote area of Galilee in the small town of Nazareth, which he had already lived there and had a job there. But it was away from Archelaus's cruel reach. So Matthew has interrupted our serene and sanitized Christmas with a huge dose of reality. Cruel, vicious, powerfully corrupt men respond to the birth of Christ's child with violence. The first thing we need to do to admit about this text is that there are parts of it which you and I will never understand. That the God who sent a myriad of angels to sing in the sky above Bethlehem couldn't, they, they, they couldn't have armed themselves with a, a, a few swords to protect these little ones. It doesn't make sense. That the birth of Jesus meant that the death of so many, it just doesn't add up. 
Behind this story then lies one of the greatest questions ever posed. Why does a good God allow such things to happen? It's the million-dollar question, and one that many, including some famous people, use as an excuse to disbelieve Jesus Christ and the Bible. A couple that come to my mind is Richard Dawkins. Remember how much publicity he, he used to get when he would publish his books, you know, about, you know, disproving God, right? He's the famous uh, biologist from Cambridge, uh, and, uh, you know, when, when finally pinned to the question, well, why don't you believe, you know, it, it, it came down, with him it comes down to, well, I just can't believe that, that a, a good God would kill so many people through the ages. Okay, well, and then you have Gene Roddenberry, of all people, creator of Star Trek, you know, the great visionary who was all, you know, tried to, the Starship Enterprise and Starfleet would be such this inclusive group of people, everything's wonderful, except Gene Roddenberry couldn't accept God either, right? And whenever he tried to include God in one of his scripts, his theology was just terrible because he just couldn't accept that a good God would allow such bad things to happen. Well, we could go on with many more. Unfortunately, there is no nice, neat way to wrap up an answer to this situation that happened in Bethlehem as if it was some perfect little Christmas package. Sometimes our struggles with God are as messy as this account from Matthew. Whether it's the holy innocence slaughtered around Bethlehem or the horrors of the Holocaust or the six and a half million people who've died from COVID or the countless ways we have felt abandoned by God, we will never completely be able to untangle the whys of such suffering. There are no easy answers for those of us who believe that God is a loving God and He is good. But although we can't completely understand the whys of such a horrific story, the eyes of faith are able to see God working through. Let me suggest three goods which arise when our Christmas is interrupted by such a tragic story as in Matthew. <clears throat> the first is that we are made to realize that the birth of the child of peace was also the birth of conflict. Behind the scenes of the little Lord Jesus' sleep on the hay is the rising darkness which opposes this Christ and will do everything to disrupt the course of His divine plan. See, Satan hated the birth of Christ, obviously, <laughs> right? And behind the ragings of Herod and the violence of his soldiers, we see the greater, the greater cosmic conflict of the devil and all his works and all his ways. Herod and his atrocity is just a, a, a macro, a, a, a microcosm, if you will, of the violence that will occur on this earth for the next 2,000 years after this. Just as God used shepherds and wise men and Mary and Joseph to be his instruments in the story, the devil unleashed his fury in the orders and arms of Herod's soldiers. So Matthew reminds us, as St. Paul will, that we wrestle not against, well, we wrestle with our own flesh and blood, but we also wrestle against the principalities of darkness as they opposed Jesus from the first moment of His birth, so they will oppose us 
as we bear the angel's message of glad tidings to the ends of the earth. It's just a, it's just the fact of being a Christian. We're going to receive opposition. The little babe of Bethlehem, of course, he wins the cosmic struggle in the end, and that's good news. The great irony is that he does not win by force of arms, nor by power or might of violence, but by service of sacrifice and love. He loves so many, so much, that those precious hands will one day hold nails for us. And that tiny precious head will be jabbed with thorns for us. It is this great conquering of sacrificial love that which has outlasted all the Herods of this world, past, present, and future. It is this kingdom of love which has overextended the furthest reaches of the Roman Empire. So, we are reminded in this terrible story of the great cosmic struggle which is finally won by Jesus' great sacrifice of love. The second good which arises out of this untidy account is that it's all part and parcel of a greater plan. Matthew tells us that two or three prophecies are fulfilled during this event. In the fleeing and then the return of the Holy Family out of Egypt, we see the people of Israel's own slavery and Exodus pictured. There's echoes of the Exodus from Egypt and Pharaoh and then also from slavery into Babylon many years later. In the great cries of the grief-strucken women around Bethlehem, we hear the echoes of the cries of the ancient women of Israel as their families are killed and drug off to Babylon. But God would one day free His people from their slavery and the remnant would return from Babylon after a 70-year exile. And just as God had a plan for His people, so He had a plan for His Son. This baby would live to die on the cross to save His people from their sins. He would rise from the dead to take away the real power of death. Thus He did for all people, you and me, and even those little ones killed at the time of His birth. Matthew reminds us that as difficult as the story is, it was part of a larger plan of salvation for the whole world, which was prophesied long ago. The third good which arises from such a hard story is the reminder that Christmas is for all children, for all people, not just for those with snow-globed lives. It reminds us that the death of these innocent children is part of the Christmas story, which means that the Christmas story is also for those whose lives haven't been perfect. Those who can't tie up their lives in a nice, neat package, well, the tragedy of this story reminds us about the tragedies in life. And that is precisely why Jesus Christ came to earth. Yeah, Christmas, the birth of Jesus, is also for those whose lives cannot be neatly written on the inside of a Hallmark card. but whose lives have been messy, full of hurt, and even tragedy. This same child of peace, who in the end was victorious over the forces of evil in the world, this same child of peace who fulfilled all prophecy in being part of God's larger plan of salvation, this same child of peace has promised to work 
even through the saddest, most tragic of human experiences, He came to earth for you. He is the child of peace who will one day stand as the resurrection and the life, and you and I will stand with Him. He is for all people of all times, in all circumstances, including the messy, untidying, or even tragic ones. He and only He has the power to overcome the greatest sadnesses and the hardest times and the worst messes we make of our lives. So, may it be so for you this new year, and may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.